before we get this episode started, we need to thank our wonderful sponsors. That are sponsors, especially our three annual sponsors, David Carell of Universal Creative Concepts, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity, and Campbell University Divinity School. This podcast wouldn't happen. So here's where you come in. Take a few minutes to go to each of their websites and check what they have to offer. Or if you really want to take it to the next level, be sure to tweet about this episode and thank our sponsors. This podcast is presented to you by the School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University. The School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University exists to prepare men and women for Christian ministry, namely the work of the Lord's Church. Our two degrees, the Master of Divinity and the Doctor of Ministry, are carefully designed to equip and encourage ministers for the calling that God has placed on their lives. The Master of Divinity offers six concentrations, and the Doctor of Ministry can be obtained in either Christian ministries or pastoral care and counseling. Should God have called you to any number of ministry vocations, or if you aren't quite sure which one yet, you will find a place here at Gardner-Webb where, as one of our former deans once said, your heart and your head can be friends. For more information on the Divinity School and upcoming events, visit gardner-webb.edu backslash divinity. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Before we get to our conversation, let me give you a snapshot of the next few weeks. We sat down with podcast host and author Christian Pyatt, professor of homiletics Kenyatta Gilbert, and the best-selling author Jonathan Merritt. Be on the lookout for a few special edition episodes featuring a roundup of guests from the podcast stage at General Assembly. And now on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's podcast is Father James Martin. Father James is a Jesuit priest and best-selling author of Jesus, a Pilgrimage, The Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything, Between Heaven and Mirth, The Abbey, and Building a Bridge. He's the editor-at-large of American Magazine and contributing writer for the New York Times and Wall Street Journal. Father James, thank you for joining the conversation. My pleasure, and please call me Jim. Okay. Um, well, uh, for those that aren't familiar with you, uh, that aren't fanboys like myself, tell us a little bit more about you. Sure. I'm a Jesuit priest, and that means I'm a member of a Catholic religious order called the Society of Jesus, also known as the Jesuits. I was born in Philadelphia and uh, went to business school and then worked for GE, General Electric, uh, before entering the Jesuits, before deciding I wanted to give my life over to God and to Jesus. And I've been in the Jesuits, boy, 30 years. And I work at uh, America Magazine, which is a Catholic magazine in New York City. And basically, I write. Uh, I write books and articles and things like that and do a lot of stuff on social media. So that's, that's me. I'm Jesuit priest. Well, maybe if we could backtrack there. I mean, you did uh, six years of General Electric work. Tell us about that experience where all of a sudden you're, you're sensing this, this radical calling into the, into the clerical work. Well, business, you know, as a lot of your listeners will know, is a real vocation for many, many people in this country. And it's a very holy vocation. I just realized that it wasn't for me. Uh, at the time, uh, I had finished uh, my finance and accounting studies at Wharton as an undergrad and really enjoyed working at GE at the beginning. But eventually, it just got boring for me, and I was pretty miserable. I, I found myself sort of trapped in a job that wasn't fi- uh, a good fit for me. 
but I didn't really see a way out. And one night I turned on the TV and there was a documentary about a Trappist monk named Thomas Merton, uh, who was active in the 40s and 50s and 60s. And the story was so interesting. He had led, left behind a kind of dissolute life and entered a Trappist monastery uh, in Kentucky that it prompted me to track down and read his autobiography and think about uh, leaving GE. And, you know, that's the way God calls us through our desires. Um, you know, most of us don't get visions or hear voices or anything like that. It's mainly through our desires. And, you know, at the time, my desire was to live a life more centered on God uh, and, you know, more like he did. And that, that's, that was sort of what was leading me out of the, the corporate world. I didn't know if you had, you know, you know, missed a line or crossed lines one day and just got a, you know, a, a highly voltage shock. And that kind of made you rethink, you know, kind of a Luther moment. Um, but uh, you cut your teeth in some pretty challenging ministry and authentic um, ministries. You outreach uh, program in the streets of Chicago, chaplaincy to the sick in Cambridge, uh, the Jesuit refugee services in East Africa and hospice care in, in Jamaica. How do how do these experiences help shape the way you serve the church today? Well, it's all part of uh, what we call in the Jesuits our formation, our training. Do you have that word as well, by the way, in the Baptist world, formation? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was part of my formation as a Jesuit. And we're asked to, uh, at different points in our Jesuit training, to work with the poor. And for an extended period of time, I was in East Africa, as you said, for two years. What is a duty? Well, it reminds you mainly of your reliance on God, that, you know, you can't do everything that you're, as a, as a friend of mine likes to say, there's good news and there's better news. The good news is that there is a Messiah and the better news is it's not you. So there's a, there's an invitation to uh, being aware of what you can do and what you can't do, being aware of what, what your gifts are and also, you know, what your limitations are. And also, you know, I think, it just enabled me to see Christ among the poor and to, to find Christ among the poor and to see how important it was to work with people who are really um, on the margins. Uh, you know, recently, um, Pope Francis said to the Jesuits, you know, we expect you to be on the peripheries, on the margins. And so that's, that's a place where Jesuits tend to go where people might be underserved or, you know, even underserved by the church or churches. And uh, that's where I found myself in my Jesuit training. Now, in 2009, um, you pronounced your final vows um, as a Jesuit uh, in New York City, um, vows of poverty and chastity and obedience. Uh, for those that aren't familiar with um, the Jesuit order, take us, take us a little deeper into um, kind of what sets this group apart from, from other orders. Sure. Well, we were founded in 1540 by St. Ignatius Loyola, uh, who was a Spaniard soldier turned uh, mystic, uh, turned you know, founder of a religious order. And we're a group of uh, priests and brothers, so guys who are ordained and not ordained. We live in community uh, together. And as you say, we take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, which is an imitation of Jesus. I mean, Jesus lived poor, chaste, and obedient uh, to the Father. And uh, most of the people in the United States would know us from our uh, educational institutions, um, you know, the bigger schools would be places like uh, Boston College and Georgetown and um, uh, Fordham University in the South. 
uh, places like Loyola, New Orleans, and Spring Hill. Um, in Atlanta, we have uh, Cristo Rey schools, you know, middle schools for um, struggling families. And um, but we're we're asked to do really anything uh, that is for God's greater glory. And so a Jesuit priest can be a teacher, of course, and any one of our schools, but he could also be working in a refugee camp, uh, you know, ministering pastorally to people or even working in a magazine, a Catholic magazine like I do. So finding God in all things is the shorthand way of looking at uh, the Jesuit spirituality. And that means that you can really find Jesuits almost everywhere, you know, doing pretty much anything you can imagine. You know, I have a Jesuit friend who runs the Vatican Observatory. I have a Jesuit friend who is the Catholic chaplain at San Quentin Prison on death row. I have a Jesuit friend who's a doctor, et cetera, et cetera. But most of us are either teaching, uh, working in parishes, or working in retreat houses. Well, you, you join a, a long and honorable cavalcade of Jesuits, uh, Ignatius, obviously, uh, Francis Xavier, uh, Peter Faber, and then, of course, there's, um, you know, the big guy, Pope Francis. <laughs> My boss. Yeah. <laughs> Now, you know, one church history question, what was Pope Clement XIV's issue with the Jesuits? I mean, to abolish the order in 1773, that was a pretty low point in his rule of office. Yeah, it was a low point in our history, too. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's kind of complicated, but essentially, um, the Jesuits were seen as uh, too independent and not sort of, you know, as uh, manageable. Uh, they were seen as uh, too influential in political affairs. Um, if you see the movie, The Mission, that came out in 1980, uh, you know, two, in a sense, uh, you know, on the edge. And so there are a lot of political powers who were aligned against us uh, at that time in Europe. And they, you know, basically prevailed upon the Pope to what we call suppress us. He abolished the Jesuits. And that was from 1773. And finally, uh, a Pope, uh, you know, a few Popes later restored us in 1814. But for a while, we were kind of, you know, you know, dispersed and wandering. And yeah, it was definitely a low point. <laughs> Clement XIV is not a very popular pope among Jesuits. <laughs> no, he's not, he's not a name people often take. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Well, maybe if we can get to some of the serious stuff here. Um, sure. How did you become the chaplain of the Colbert Report? Yes, we'll turn to the serious stuff now. Yeah. Uh, I had written an article in 2007 in the New York Times about Mother Teresa. And if you remember, after uh, her letters and diaries were open, it was discovered that she had kind of gone through a dark night of the soul and had really suffered interiorly and didn't really feel God's presence in her prayer, although she still believed in God. And that was a very difficult thing for a lot of people to get their minds around. Uh, so I wrote an article in the New York Times and Stephen Colbert saw it and invited me on the show talk about it, which I was happy to do. It was, you know, right around the corner too from where I was working. And we had a lot of fun. And then he invited me on, I think, six or seven times after that to talk about different religious things. Anytime something Catholic would come up, I would get a call. So it was a lot of fun. He's really, he's a very, very good person. You're not holding a grudge that he hasn't brought you on the late show yet. <laughs> no, I am, I am forgiving like Christ asks us to be, right? Well, of course, we know Stephen Colbert is listening to this podcast as well, so you know, that's kind of a hint, hint, wink, wink, Stephen, that you need to bring Father James on. Uh, my wife and I uh, had a quick uh, vacation to New York City last year, and uh, I've been a diehard Colbert fan since back when he was on The Daily Show, and we got to sit second row, uh, and 
my wife is on the aisle seat and he comes down at the end to start shaking people's hands. And I, you know, it's one of these moments like, okay, do I slightly move my wife to the side so that I can touch Stephen Colbert? I didn't. <laughs> so she turns around and flashes her hand that she shook of his in my face, just as a kind of reminder that I got to do it and you didn't. So I'm always one person away from Stephen Colbert and you just happen to be the next person in line. Well, you know, you're good to you're good to hang back, right? The the last shall be first eventually. Eventually. <laughs> maybe maybe this interview will push him over the edge and 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 maybe I'll get to meet him one day. Uh in the spring I, I see you visited the the Met Costume Institute exhibit and it seems to be right at the top priorities of responsibility for most Jesuit priests. Um so Rihanna's wearing this uh, silver clad papal hat and Katy Perry's dressed in these angelic wings and then Jonah Hill somehow missed the memo is just wearing a tuxedo with no religious garb. T tell us about that experience. It seems uh, quite unique. Well, it was unique. And I think it's important to distinguish the exhibit, the Mets exhibit, which is called Heavenly Bodies, uh, Catholic Imagination and Fashion, which is how uh, Catholic religious imagery has influenced fashion designers, which is quite serious. And the gala itself, which was a fundraiser, and uh, you know some of the costumes were pretty outlandish. Most of the people there um, were dressed appropriately, right? You know, just gowns and tuxedos and stuff. And then there were people like, as you said, Rihanna, who was dressed <laughs> ridiculously. So I was happy to go. I had helped the Met with the exhibit in terms of putting them in touch with people in the Vatican and also... Uh, looking at some of the exhibits to make sure they weren't in any way offensive um, to Catholic people or to Catholic sensibilities. So it was fun. It's not something I do every day, which is go to the Met Gala. And I, I found it was interesting because it seemed as almost, it seemed as if almost everyone there was uncomfortable because people didn't know one another. So it was a kind of party of bold-faced names, as they say in the New York Times, uh, where people or themselves, you know, looking around and trying to see who they knew and, you know, trying to sort of blend in or fit in as much as they could. I had a good time. I didn't stay for the whole thing, but I, I enjoyed it. And I, I saw a few people and was able to have fun. It is quite humorous to think about, you know, the theme for this given year. You're walking around, I'm sure, in your clerical collar and people not sure if you're dressed up, you know, for the occasion or if you really are a Catholic priest, which makes it even more awkward if they're dressed like Rihanna or Katy Perry was dressed for that night. Oh, yeah, they they there were definitely people who came up to me and said, um, oh, my gosh, you know, I can't believe that costume. And, oh, you look like just just like a real priest. And you know, I said, I am a real priest. Oh, I can't <laughs> believe it. And. Uh, someone said, um, you look like you just came from mass, which I did. I went to a 5:30 mass a few blocks away and I said, well, I did. And they said, Oh, what an awesome pre-show and gave me a high five. <laughs> another guy said, uh, another guy said, dude, you're the best. No, bro. You're the best. Uh, you're the best. Why did he say it? Dude, you're the best bro here. The best looking bro here or something like that. The best dressed bro here. And then gave me a high five. And I, you know, I'm not offended by those kinds of things. I think one, I think some people, well, 85% of the people that I spoke to were very polite and obviously understood that I was a priest. Um, another sort of 5% uh, uh, basically were trying to be funny. Uh, and I think the last 5% probably didn't know how to behave around a priest. And, you know, not that you have to put on airs or being your best behavior, but I think it just made them feel awkward. 
So I find that sometimes when I'm in my collar in New York, that sometimes people just don't know what to say and the, the collar throws them off and they get self-conscious. So, but it doesn't bother me. No one was trying to be offensive or rude. It was just, <laughs> was funny and uh, playful and, and at times awkward, but there was nothing that was rude about it. Yeah. I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that's the first time in history that the Eucharist has ever been referred to as a great pregame party. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was the first time for me too. <laughs> and, you know, I was standing in front of, they were two fashion models, very tall, and they clearly didn't know what to say. And that's okay. I mean, I don't know much about their world. I don't know anything about being a fashion model, obviously, and, you know, what their life is like. And so, you know, maybe if I asked them a question or tried to make a joke, it would come off as flat as well. So I, I really, I don't take offense at those things. I've, I've, it's, I've had it happen to me so many times in New York you know, since my ordination that I just say, well, okay, you know, people are trying to be, people are trying to be friendly and, and funny. And sometimes the jokes fall flat, but it was pretty funny. And I, I tweeted out some of the responses because they just made me laugh. Well, I know we just met, but I feel like you could pull off being a model. You should definitely do like a, <laughs> oh yeah, thanks. Like a, a Catholic priest calendar. That would sell, that would be a great fundraiser for a given year. I will pass that along to my religious superior and see what he has to say. <laughs> we'll see what Francis has to say. This week's episode is brought to you by Candler School of Theology at Emory University. For more than a century, Candler has educated faithful and creative leaders for the church's ministry through the world, now announcing a new program in Catholic studies to prepare lay leaders and scholars for service in the Catholic Church, nonprofits, and the academy. Choose from 16 degrees, including a Master of Divinity with a concentration in Catholic Studies, Master of Theological Studies, a Master of Religion and Public Life, and an online Doctorate of Ministry. Discover more at apply.candler.emory.edu. That's apply.candler.emory.edu. It's been, it's been said that you are uh, the master of translating tough theological matters into the vernacular. How does one land that attribute? Well, I hope um, I'm good at it because I think that that's what we're called to do as Christians and as ministers. And that's what Jesus did. Um, one of my favorite definitions of a parable is from, I'm sure you know, C.H. Dodd, uh, the famous scripture scholar. He said, a parable uh, is a metaphor or simile, let me think, drawn from nature or everyday life um, that's, that uh, let's see, that so arrests the mind um, by its vividness or strangeness as to leave the mind, uh, as to tease the mind into active thought, something like that. So the idea is that Jesus used very simple tools, um, right? Uh, objects like wheat and birds and seeds and clouds to talk about somewhat complicated theological ideas. For example, the reign of God, which was the central message of his preaching. And so if Jesus could bring things down to earth to people and speak in their language, why shouldn't we? So I, I think that it's incumbent upon us to do what Jesus did, which is to make the Gospels and make Jesus and make God and um, you know, the spiritual life accessible and inviting for people. Jesus always met people where they were and spoke to them in their own language, right, in their own uh, vernacular, of course, but also using things that they can understand. So it's it's a goal of mine. And I also prefer spiritual writers who are more down to earth. I don't really like, I mean, I've read sort of complicated theology books, but 
they sort of leave me flat and I long for um, the Jesus, at least the Jesus of the synoptics, you know, who's, who's more down there. So that's, that's my model. And I, I, so I try to do that and I'm happy when people think I've succeeded. Well, take us a little bit into um, the life of working through contentious theological matters within the church. You know, a little background for us, you know, CBF is not a denomination, but a fellowship of missional minded churches. So we gather together because we kind of like each other sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, as as much as Baptists can like each other before we have to find an issue with each other. But there's not a there's not a doctrinal statement that binds us together. There's not a governing body that dictates to each local church um, what it can and cannot practice. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But for us, therefore, coming around theological matters can be even more difficult because there's not a governing body saying this is where we stand. This is uh, what we believe on this. Uh, that churches can oftentimes divide among themselves because we can't seem to find common ground there. Um, and, and obviously, uh, each, each parish is, is different, but there is, a certain, um, there is a certain communication that takes place within uh, the church of where the church stands on matters, how the church wrestles through matters. So, so what does that look like on a day-to-day basis for those serving in parishes uh, from church to church? Well, you mean within the Catholic Church? Yes. Well, for most parishes and for most pastors and pastoral workers, uh, that is, you know, priests and lay people, the doctrinal issues really don't come up as much. Um, you know, people, people go to church because they want to receive the Eucharist. They want to be in community. Uh, they want their children baptized. They want to get married. They want to have people uh, buried in funerals. They go for the sacraments, they go for community. And, you know, for the most part, those kinds of disputations or arguments do not arise. Now, you know, from time to time they do, say a divorced and remarried Catholic wants to receive communion or an LGBT person is in a relationship or uh, any one of the myriad uh, sort of personal situations that I'm sure the the Baptists uh, encounter as well. And at that point, the the priest or the pastoral worker has to help the person understand the gospels and church teaching, and then also understand you know where their conscience fits in. So I'd say I'd say it's more of a on a local level that those things happen, uh, and that most of the time, I'd say ninety percent of the time, uh, people who work in Catholic parishes are not dealing with contentious doctrinal issues. I mean, I deal with it a little bit more because I'm writing and I'm you know, expected to comment on those things. So I think it's probably more a part of my life than it may be for people who are in the trenches. And, you know, funny enough, I have a friend of mine who I just talked to last night, a very good friend who's the president of a Jesuit high school in upstate New York. And I bring up some of these uh, contentious topics that are being bandied about and, you know, on social media or in the news or he just laughs. (laughs) He just says, you know, I'm I'm running a high school, you know, I'm making sure that, uh, you know, the classes are filled and that kids get their grades and the teachers are doing the right thing. And he, he doesn't talk about those kinds of things. He doesn't, he barely thinks about those kinds of things. And I think that's where most uh, people in the trenches are these days. They're, they're, I mean, they're aware of it and they're intelligent enough to be able to think about it and work their way through it. But it's not something that comes up on a day-to-day basis for them. They have other fish to fry. Well, uh, I certainly think um, 
it, it's difficult when it comes to to theology um, and personal theology versus kind of doctrinal theology. When I guess we're talking about more uh, more ethics, and 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 really, you've written a, a good bit recently um, on on probably a more contentious theological matter for most churches, uh, at least uh, in the Protestant tradition around sexuality. And you wrote a brilliant book in 2017, uh, Building a Bridge, How the Catholic Church and the LGBT Community Can Enter into a Relationship of Respect, Compassion, and Sensitivity. And the book was so sensational that HarperCollins came back and asked you to expand it and revise it. So that's always a compliment. Um, but in the book, you make uh, some challenging um, uh, changes for the church. You, you, you're, it's, it's, it's a message uh, to those that are part of the LGBT uh, community that God loves them, uh, that God is present in their lives, that um, uh, that God deeply desires to be in, in in journey with them, that the church is a safe space for them, and 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 you really you build this argument around the fact that Jesus uh, was constantly with the outsiders of first century Palestine. Um, so can we start right there? The gospels seem to be so overwhelmingly saturated with Jesus building this bridge between those that are, are called by the religious to be outsiders and, and the kingdom of God. And why does there seem to be such a disconnect with Jesus' followers and Jesus' comprehensive compassion, do you think? Good question. I would say homophobia and plain old sin, uh, even in Jesus' time. Remember, was very... Um, problematic for Jesus to reach out to people who are on the margins. One of my favorite passages, which I use uh, in the book, Building a Bridge, is the story of Zacchaeus, which I'm sure you know backwards and forwards. And when Jesus goes into Jericho to, um, you know, on his way to Jerusalem, you know, towards the end of his public ministry, he sees the chief tax collector of Jericho, um, who would also have been seen as the chief sinner of the time, Zacchaeus, uh, up in the tree. And he extends to him this message of mercy and says, hurry down because I must come to your house today. Now, I use the case as an emblem of the LGBT person, not because the LGBT people are any more sinful than anyone else, because we're all sinners, right? But because the would have been the most marginalized person in the city, right? I mean, literally, he's physically marginalized. He has to climb a tree. Uh, he can't see Jesus because of the crowd. And the great line that I love in the Gospel of Luke, which only became meaningful to me in the past few months since this book came out, is that when Jesus says, hurry down, I must um, come to your house, the gospel says, Luke says, uh, all in the crowd began to grumble. <laughs> and that's because an extension of mercy to people on the margins always makes people angry. And that happens today as well. So, if you're going to say we need to extend mercy to the LGBT person, people start to grumble and they get angry. And where does that come from? I mean, some of it is just uh, our homophobia. The, the, the LGBT person is seen as other, is seen as different, is seen as the only sinner, the greatest sinner, uh, the, the most unrepentant sinner. When often these people have done nothing. You know, they were born that way, as, as most people will accept these days. And so I try to remind people that these are the people to whom Jesus would first go to, right? I mean, the, the, as you say, the the examples are are just overwhelming. I mean, the the Samaritan woman, right? The woman at the well, who was not only a woman but also Samaritan, and 
Two reasons why Jesus shouldn't be talking to her. The Roman centurion whose servant he heals. Another person who's not even in Jewish culture. On and on and on and on. And so what I try to encourage at least the Catholic Church to do is to recover this tradition of Jesus reaching out to the person on the margins and also seeing that person in the LGBT person. So that's that's one of the goals of the book. Yeah, and I, I would certainly say that, you know, my honest reading of the book was this wasn't necessarily... Um you know, a theological uh, argument uh, to change people's minds around the issue um, as much as changing the way they see others uh, who are part of the LGBTQ community. So I wonder how, how has your resource been helpful for Catholics? Well, I hope it's been helpful. From what I hear, uh, people are using it in parishes uh, as um, sort of a beginning to start conversations. I know that LGBT people and their families have been very grateful for it. And I also know that bishops and priests are using it. So my goal was to really start a conversation. That book, uh, Building a Bridge, is not the be-all and end-all of LGBT ministry. Um, you know, nor do I set out a sort of programmatic plan for, you know, what the church needs to do next. But I just wanted to give people some insights and maybe some ways of discussing things and certainly gospel passages. The second half of the book is really a an invitation to prayer using gospel passages and reflection questions, because that's just as important as the dialogue, if not more important. So I wanted to give them a, a resource, as you say, to start the conversation and to really break open this this important dialogue, because LGBT people feel, at least in the Catholic Church, like they're completely marginalized, excluded, ignored, and over the past few months, I've heard the worst stories about how these people are being treated. So it really is a, it's a crying need for the church, at least the Catholic Church. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Campbell University Divinity School. Committed to Christ-centered, Bible-based, and ministry-focused theological education, and committed to helping you answer your call with a variety of master's and doctoral-level programs. To get a taste of Campbell's experience, you are invited to attend the World Religions and Global Culture Center's first international conference on religious diversity, July 26th through the 27th. The theme of the conference is Jesus in a Pluralistic Age. Respected Christian and non-Christian leaders and scholars in North Carolina and around the world will participate at the conference as speakers and members of panel discussion. The conference will nurture a spirit of tolerance and mutual understanding among devotees of different faith traditions. Special guests will include local Christian, Jewish, and Muslim clergy, Dr. George Braswell, Dr. Peter Fawn, Dr. Leo Lifbuer of Georgetown University, and Stephen Porter of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. The event will begin on Thursday, July 26 at 12.30 p.m. and will end on Friday, July 27th at 11.30 a.m. The cost is $25 and students can attend for free. For more information or to register, visit our website at divinity.campbell.edu. We invite you to learn more about us. Check out our degrees, concentrations, and programs. Come to one of our continuing education lectures, to a visitation day, to one of our regional recruiting events. Contact us to schedule an individual visit. Call one of our faculty and lead a retreat or Bible study or wrestle with difficult issues. We look forward to hearing from you. I don't know if Harper Collins keeps coming back to you asking you to expand it and revise it. You might be writing the end all be all book. So we'll see what happens next <laughs> year. Now yeah, you, I think I think I've said my I think I've said my piece actually. <laughs> well, you've you've obviously faced some resistance within the church that are of course opposing theological arguments, but what do you think is really behind the resistance to your book? 
Well, we have to distinguish between the legitimate critiques, uh, you know, that come from thoughtful people uh, on both sides. Uh, people in the LGBT community, some of them say, you know, you didn't go far enough. People, uh, you know, within the, the church hierarchy say you may have gone too far. Ninety percent of the people have been very supportive. Uh, it has the approval of my Jesuit superiors. It has endorsements from, by this point, three cardinals, several archbishops and bishops. Uh, the Italian version had an introduction written by the Archbishop of Bologna, on and on and on. So it's important to say that, you know, most people were positive, but there were some critics. Now, there were also some critics that were not thoughtful and were just hateful and cruel and homophobic. And, you know, if you go online, you can see them. Where does that come from? It comes from homophobia. I mean, plain and simple, that's where the hateful critiques come from. It does not come from a place of freedom. Uh, and it comes from the same place that led the crowd to grumble when Jesus talked to Zacchaeus. I mean, that is exactly the same place. Uh, Jesus's opponents, uh, you know, were angered him for extending mercy. And this is the this is the reaction to the book. You know, you can't be merciful to these people. They are sinners. And that's exactly what they thought about Zacchaeus. Uh, and so that's where it comes from. And um, it's, a, it's a shame that, I'll speak for the Catholic Church, it's a shame that there is still a great deal of homophobia in the church. And I think, sadly, a lot of that has been religiously motivated. People, in a sense, have been giving a, given a pass and have been told it's okay to discriminate against these people. So that, that's one thing I, the book really, the book wants to uh, rebut, which is homophobia. It's, just, it's a sin. I really believe that. As, as much as racism or sexism or any other uh, sort of thing that marginalizes a group of people. Well, we can sit here for the rest of the day and can't think of a single time in the church's history that we have done awful things in the name of God. Um, mm -hmm. The Jesuit engagement with the LGBT community is a microcosm of your work uh, with the marginalized around the world. Specifically, the Jesuits are at the forefront of the work alongside refugees and immigrants and have this um, long history of, of doing good work. So what are some practical things the church can learn from your order about standing with the marginalized? What a great question. Um, I hope that they learn that this is simply part of the gospel and that this is where Jesus asks us to stand. I mean, in Matthew 25, it's the least of my brothers and sisters. Now, I know there's a theological debate over whether that means the least of my brothers and sisters within the church or the least of my brothers and sisters in the world. But, you know, the idea of God's, as we say in the Catholic Church, preferential option for the poor is really a strong one for us, that that Christ asks us to go to the poor first. Um, and so that's where we try to go as Jesuits. Now, I, you know, currently do not work one-on-one -on -one with very many poor people in Manhattan, but uh, many of my brothers do and are really on the front lines. One of my closest friends is working um, in Uganda uh, as the country director for the Jesuit Refugee Service. And, you know, he helps people work with Sudanese refugees, you know, in northern Uganda and, you know, pastoral work and um, medical supplies and those kinds of things. Um, and to learn that also that, that Christ can be found in the poor, that, that Christ is right there. We, we, in a sense, you know, the old missionary idea was that we're going to bring God to people in the missionary countries. But you know, the, the modern day missionary recognizes that God is already there. And, you know, most of these people are they're already Christian already. It's helping um, people encounter God in their lives already and also helping them. I mean, I think in material ways, I think the spiritual needs are great, but so are the material needs. And we, we take care of those, too.
It always seems curious to me that um, when I think of the Jesuits, I think of uh, the way of Jesus, this, um, this day in, day out, village to village work alongside the poor, um, the outcast, um, the so-called sinners of the day. Why do you think there is such a disconnect um, oftentimes within the church between the ministry message and invitation of Jesus and, and this practical work, this good work that you do each day? Well, I don't always do good work every day, I would say. I mean, I'm not always working with the poor. Uh, I think the easy answer is I was just reading about this in the Gospels this morning. It's hard. <laughs> you know, they just it's difficult. It's difficult to, you know, as Jesus says, to take up your cross, right? It's difficult to, as Jesus said to the rich young man, give up everything. Um, you know, the disciples say, how can we do this? You know, how, how is it possible to do these things? And of course, the answer is, you know, it's through God's grace, right? But these things are hard. I mean, it's hard for someone to pack up and, you know, move to a refugee camp. It's hard for someone to Say, I'm going to work with uh, the poorest of the poor, like Mother Teresa did. It's hard for someone to say, I'm going to work in an inner city school, you know, where kids are really, you know, facing, uh, you know, lives that seem very despairing. So that can be difficult. I think what the Christian has, though, is the promise of the resurrection, the promise that God is with you. And I, I found that that was the difference between the work that we were able to do in East Africa and the work that some secular agencies were able to do. We basically did more or less the same things. I mean, obviously, they weren't doing, you know, spirituality stuff and, you know, saying masses for refugees. But, you know, I was helping refugees start small businesses and income generating activities, you know, which a lot of NGOs would do. The difference is that when the NGOs would run into to sort of problems, you know, I think they didn't have as many spiritual resources to fall back on. And I believe that God was with me. And I believe that even though if I, I wasn't seeing results, that somehow God was going to do something that I might not be able to see or may not be able to even know about, you know, I mean, this side of the grave. And so there's the promise of the resurrection and the promise that, you know, I will be with you always. And so that's a big difference um, between, you know, what someone might do in an NGO. And of course, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. And they do wonderful work. And what Someone would do, however, in a religious context. And so that's what helped me move on. But but to answer your question, you know, it's it's tough. It's tough work, but you know, we do it all for Jesus. Well, for the the nonprofit execs, the accountants, the stay-at-home moms or dads, what would you say they could do today uh, to do the work of Christ? Oh, well, I think the most important thing is to recognize that um your your life is is a way to holiness and that you know no matter who you are you know god is calling you to be holy in your own way so the mother with three kids you know um in a suburban home is not meant to pick up and go to east africa right uh, like i did uh and the the executive is meant to support his or her family right and to do it in a holy way so i think it's it's really finding holiness where you are uh, you know, bloom where you're planted, as they say. And, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Pope Francis had a new apostolic letter that came out called Rejoice and Be Glad. And it's about holiness and it's about sanctity. And he says over and over again that, you know, uh, in the words of Thomas Merton, for me to be a saint means to be myself. Right. And so how can the mother, you know, become a saint or become holy by being a good mother? You know, how can an executive by being a good executive, right, by being a good pastor? 
by being a good lawyer. And of course, you know, and, and trying to do all things for God's glory and trying to be charitable and forgiving and merciful. And also, I think, challenge yourself to even go beyond that and to, to think about how can I help the world, right? So it's, if I'm a mother of three kids, I, I'm, I'm a loving mother, I'm a loving wife and a loving neighbor. And, but I'm also helping in my church. And, you know, from time to time, I say, wow, I, I see this problem with refugees. How can I help them? Maybe I can volunteer. But but it's doing it within the context of your own life. Um, and that's how you become the saint, you know, we believe, right? By being yourself. Francis de Sales, the, the great Catholic saint said, um, which I love, be who you are and be that perfectly well. Well, just so we're clear, I think my mother could have been one of those moms that just shipped off and went to Africa. She raised three boys and there's many times that I think we, we almost sent her away packing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that would be another motivation. That's pretty funny to go to Africa. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I, you know, look, who is more holy? Mother Teresa, who works with the poorest of the poor in Calcutta, or the mother of three kids who wakes up at 3 a.m. to change their diapers and takes them to the hospital? And the answer is they're both holy. There's, it's not more or less. It's different kinds of holiness and you know that mother of three may be awful at the kind of work that mother Teresa did but you know to to drive home the point mother Teresa might have been terrible at the kind of work that that mother did right she wasn't meant for married life so we need to really kind of stop comparing I think you know who's holier or what's the holiest life and and to try to encourage people to find God and, and holiness in their own lives well, besides Harper Collins asking to you 10 years from now to continue to revise Building a Bridge, what's, uh, what's next for you? I'm working on a book on prayer, which I'm tentatively calling How to Pray, pretty uh, straight down the middle title. It's pretty instructive. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, funny enough, I saw a collection of essays by C.S. Lewis uh, that came out uh, this week called How to Pray. <laughs> and I thought, oh, no, C.S. Lewis took my title. Um, and then I'm doing a book on Lazarus. Uh, that's my sort of far in the future book. I really, that's my favorite gospel story. So I'd like to do a, just kind of a extended meditation on that, that beautiful gospel story. You should totally do a ripoff book. Don't name it Chronicles of Narnia, but find some sort of twist that <laughs> can one up C.S. Lewis. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Book, yeah. Book with a lion as a fictional character and a wardrobe and all those kinds of things. Yeah. As if no one would notice that. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. Well, if you're interested in staying connected uh, with Father James Martin, you can follow him on Twitter at James Martin SJ, along with his website, jamesmartinsj.com. Um, Father James, thank you for being the master of translating tough theological matters into the vernacular. Um, more importantly, thank you for taking time out to have a conversation with us today. My pleasure. Good to be with you and keep me in your prayers. This podcast is brought to you by David Carell of Universal Creative Concepts. At UCC, they specialize in partnering with churches and ministries like yours to provide quality products for your logo and branding. David likes to find the right products that represent and fit your desired need and budget. UCC can logo virtually any product that you might be looking for. Need apparel like t-shirts, jackets, polos, socks for staff, youth groups, conferences, or from any other branding needs? UCC is your one-stop shop. UCC can provide all logoed items that you use for visitors, from pens to drinkware, or tees for VBS. David desires to be your go-to guy for all items logoed. 
On a personal note, I've been using David at Universal Creative Concepts since 2009, and I hope you will give him the opportunity to serve your promo needs. Whatever you want logoed, David does it. Contact him today at 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.net. That's 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.net. Hey, you won't be disappointed. Well, that's our episode. We'll see you next week. Visit cbf.net for more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, stories about our field personnel, chaplains, and church starters, as well as our advocacy work around the world. 